Chapter Twenty of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter Twenty. The day was very hot, and the silence of high noon lay close and thick between the steep slopes of the canyons like an invisible muffling fluid. At intervals the drone of an insect bored the air and trailed slowly to silence again. Everywhere were pungent, aromatic smells. The vast, moveless heat seemed to distill countless odors from the brush. Odors of warm sap, of pine needles, and of tar-weed, and above all the medicinal odor of witch-hazel. As far as one could look, uncounted multitudes of trees and manzanita bushes were quietly and motionlessly growing, growing, growing. A tremendous, immeasurable life pushed steadily heavenward without a sound, without a motion. At turns of the road, on the higher points, canyons disclosed themselves far away, gigantic grooves in the landscape, deep blue in the distance, opening one into another, ocean-deep, silent, huge, and suggestive of colossal primeval forces held in reserve. At their bottoms they were solid, massive, on their crests they broke delicately into fine serrated edges where the pines and redwoods outlined their million of tops against the high white horizon. Here and there the mountains lifted themselves out of the narrow river beds in groups like giant lions rearing their heads after drinking. The entire region was untamed. In some places east of the Mississippi nature is cozy, intimate, small, and homelike, like a good-natured housewife. In Placer County, California, she is a vast, unconquered brute of the Pliocene epoch, savage, sullen, and magnificently indifferent to man. But there were men in these mountains, like lice on mammoth's hides, fighting them stubbornly, now with hydraulic monitors, now with drill and dynamite, boring into the vitals of them, or tearing away great yellow gravelly scars in the flanks of them, sucking their blood, extracting gold. Here and there, at long distances upon the canyon sides, rose the headgear of a mine, surrounded with its few unpainted houses, and topped by its never-failing feather of black smoke. On near approach one heard the prolonged thunder of the stamp-mill, the crusher, the insatiable monster, gnashing the rocks to powder with its long iron teeth, vomiting them out again in a thin stream of wet gray mud. Its enormous maw, fed night and day with the carboy's loads, gorged itself with gravel, and spat out the gold, grinding the rocks between its jaws, glutted, as it were, with the very entrails of the earth, and growling over its endless meal, like some savage animal, some legendary dragon, some fabulous beast, symbol of inordinate and monstrous gluttony. McTeague had left the overland train at Colfax, and the same afternoon had ridden some eight miles across the mountains in the stage that connects Colfax with Iowa Hill. Iowa Hill was a small one-street town, the headquarters of the mines of the district. Originally it had been built upon the summit of a mountain, but the sides of this mountain have long since been hydraulic away, so that the town now clings to a mere backbone, and the rear windows of the houses on both sides of the street look down over sheer precipices into vast pits hundreds of feet deep. The dentist stayed overnight at the hill, and the next morning started off on foot farther into the mountains. He still wore his blue overalls and jumper. His woolen cap was pulled down over his eye. On his feet were hobnailed boots he had bought at the store in Colfax. His blanket roll was over his back. 
In his left hand swung the birdcage wrapped in sacks. Just outside the town he paused, as if suddenly remembering something. There ought to be a trail just off the road here, he muttered. There used to be a trail, a shortcut. The next instant, without moving from his position, he saw where it opened just before him. His instinct had halted him at the exact spot. The trail zigzagged down the abrupt descent of the canyon, debouching into a gravelly river bed. Indian River, muttered the dentist. I remember. I remember. I ought to hear the morning star's stamps from here. He cocked his head. A low, sustained roar, like a distant cataract, came to his ears from across the river. That's right, he said, contentedly. He crossed the river and regained the road beyond. The slope rose under his feet. A little farther on he passed the Morning Star Mine, smoking and thundering. McTeague pushed steadily on. The road rose with the rise of the mountain, turned at a sharp angle where a great live oak grew, and held level for nearly a quarter of a mile. Twice again the dentist left the road and took to the trail that cut through the deserted hydraulic pits. He knew exactly where to look for these trails. Not once did his instinct deceive him. He recognized familiar points at once. Here was Cold Canyon, where invariably, winter and summer, a chilly wind was blowing. Here was where the road to Spencer's branched off. Here was Bussy's old place, where at one time there were so many dogs. Here was Delmew's cabin, where unlicensed whiskey used to be sold. Here was the plank bridge with its one rotten board. And here the flat, overgrown with manzanita, where he once had shot three quail. At noon, after he had been tramping for some two hours, he halted at a point where the road dipped suddenly. A little to the right of him, and flanking the road, an enormous yellow gravel pit like an emptied lake gaped to heaven. Farther on, in the distance, a canyon zigzagged toward the horizon, rugged with pine-clad mountain crests. Nearer at hand, and directly in the line of the road, was an irregular cluster of unpainted cabins. A dull, prolonged roar vibrated in the air. McTeague nodded his head, as if satisfied. "'That's the place,' he muttered. He reshouldered his blanket roll and descended the road. At last he halted again. He stood before a low one-story building, differing from the others in that it was painted. A veranda, shut in with mosquito netting, surrounded it. McTeague dropped his blanket roll on a lumber pile outside and came up and knocked at the open door. Someone called to him to come in. McTeague entered, rolling his eyes about him, noting the changes that had been made since he had last seen this place. A partition had been knocked down, making one big room out of the two former small ones. A counter and railing stood inside the door. There was a telephone on the wall. In one corner he also observed a stack of surveyor's instruments, a big drawing board straddled on spindle legs across one end of the room, a mechanical drawing of some kind, no doubt the plan of the mine, unrolled upon it, a chromo representing a couple of peasants in a ploughed field, Millet's Angelus, was nailed unframed upon the wall, and hanging from the same wire nail that secured one of its corners in place was a bullion bag and a cartridge belt with a loaded revolver in the pouch. The dentist approached the counter and leaned his elbows upon it. Three men were in the room, a tall, lean young man, with a thick head of hair surprisingly gray, who was playing with a half-grown Great Dane puppy. Another fellow, about as young, but with a jaw almost as salient as McTeague's, stood at the letterpress, taking a copy of a letter. A third man, a little older than the other two, was pottering over a transit. This latter was massively built, 
and wore overalls and low boots streaked and stained and spotted in every direction with gray mud. The dentist looked slowly from one to the other. Then, at length, "'Is the foreman about?' he asked. The man in the muddy overalls came forward. "'What do you want?' he spoke with a strong German accent. The old invariable formula came back to McTeague on the instant. "'What's the show for a job?' At once the German foreman became preoccupied, looking aimlessly out of the window. There was a silence. You have been minor already? Yes, yes. Know how to handle pick and shovel? Yes, I know. The other seemed unsatisfied. Are you a cousin, Jack? The dentist grinned. This prejudice against Cornishmen he remembered, too. No, American. How long since you mine? Oh, year or two? Show your hands. McTeague exhibited his hard, calloused palms. When can you go to work? I want a chuck tender under night shift. I can tend a chuck. I'll go on tonight. What's your name? The dentist started. He had forgotten to be prepared for this. Huh? What? What's the name? McTeague's eye was caught by a railroad calendar hanging over the desk. There was no time to think. Burlington, he said, loudly. The German took a card from a file and wrote it down. Give this card to der boarding boss, down at der boarding house. Then come find me by der mill at six o'clock, and I set you to work. Straight as a homing pigeon, and following a blind and unreasoned instinct, McTeague had returned to the Big Dipper mine. Within a week's time it seemed to him as though he had never been away, he picked up his life again exactly where he had left it the day when his mother had sent him away with the traveling dentist the charlatan who had set up his tent by the bunkhouse the house mcteague had once lived in was still there occupied by one of the shift bosses and his family the dentist passed it on his way to and from the mine he himself slept in the bunkhouse with some thirty others of his shift at half-past five in the evening, the cook at the boarding-house sounded a prolonged alarm upon a crowbar bent in the form of a triangle that hung upon the porch of the boarding-house. McTeague rose and dressed, and with his shift had supper. Their lunch-pails were distributed to them. Then he made his way to the tunnel-mouth, climbed into a car in the waiting ore-train, and was hauled into the mine. Once inside, the hot evening air turned to a cool dampness and the forest odors gave place to the smell of stale dynamite smoke, suggestive of burning rubber. A cloud of steam came from McTeague's mouth. Underneath, the water swashed and rippled around the car wheels, while the light from the miner's candlesticks threw wavering blurs of pale yellow over the gray, rotting quartz of the roof and walls. Occasionally, McTeague bent down his head to avoid the lacking of the roof or the projections of an overhanging chute, from car to car, all along the line, the miners called to one another, as the train trundled along, joshing and laughing. A mile from the entrance, the train reached the breast where McTeague's gang worked. The men clambered from the cars and took up the labor where the day shift had left it, burrowing their way steadily through a primeval riverbed. The candlesticks, thrust into the crevices of the gravel strata, lit up faintly the half-dozen moving figures befouled with sweat and with wet gray mold, the picks struck into the loose gravel with a yielding shock. The long-handled shovels clinked amidst the piles of boulders and scraped dully in the heaps of rotten quartz. The burly drill boring for blasts broke out from time to time in an irregular chug-chug, chug-chug, while the engine that pumped the water from the mine coughed and strangled at short intervals. McTeague tended the chuck. 
In a way, he was the assistant of the man who worked the burley. It was his duty to replace the drills in the burley, putting in longer ones as the hole got deeper and deeper. From time to time he wrapped the drill with a pole pick when it stuck fast or fitchered. Once it even occurred to him that there was a resemblance between his present work and the profession he had been forced to abandon. In the burly drill he saw a queer counterpart of his old-time dental engine, and what were the drills and chucks but enormous hoe excavators, hard bits, and burrs. It was the same work he had so often performed in his parlors, only magnified, made monstrous, distorted, and grotesque, the caricature of dentistry. He passed his nights thus in the midst of the play of crude and simple forces, the powerful attacks of the burly drills, the great exertions of bared, bent backs overlaid with muscle, the brusque, resistless expansion of dynamite, and the silent, vast titanic force, mysterious and slow, that cracked the timbers, supporting the roof of the tunnel, and that gradually flattened the lagging till it was thin as paper. The life pleased the dentist beyond words. The still colossal mountains took him back again like a returning prodigal, and vaguely, without knowing why, he yielded to their influence, their immensity their enormous power, crude and blind, reflecting themselves in his own nature, huge, strong, brutal in its simplicity. And this, though he only saw the mountains at night, they appeared far different then than in the daytime. At twelve o'clock he came out of the mine and lunched on the contents of his dinner pail, sitting upon the embankment of the track, eating with both hands, and looking around him with a steady ox-like gaze. The mountains rose sheer from every side, heaving their gigantic crests far up into the night, the black peaks crowding together, and looking now less like beasts than like a company of cowled giants. In the daytime they were silent, but at night they seemed to stir and rouse themselves. Occasionally the stamp mill stopped, its thunder ceasing abruptly. Then one could hear the noises that the mountains made in their living. From the canyon, from the crowding crests, from the whole immense landscape, there rose a steady and prolonged sound, coming from all sides at once, it was that incessant and muffled roar which disengages itself from all vast bodies, from oceans, from cities, from forests, from sleeping armies, and which is like the breathing of an infinitely great monster, alive, palpitating. McTeague returned to his work. At six in the morning his shift was taken off, and he went out of the mine and back to the bunkhouse. All day long he slept, flung at length upon the strong-smelling blankets, slept the dreamless sleep of exhaustion, crushed and overpowered with the work, flat and prone upon his belly, till again in the evening the cook sounded the alarm upon the crowbar bent into a triangle. Every alternate week the shifts were changed. The second week McTeague's shift worked in the daytime and slept at night. Wednesday night of this second week the dentist woke suddenly. He sat up in his bed in the bunkhouse, looking about him from side to side, an alarm clock hanging on the wall, over a lantern marked half-past three. "'What was it?' muttered the dentist. "'I wonder what it was.' The rest of the shift were sleeping soundly, filling the room with the rasping sound of snoring. Everything was in its accustomed place. Nothing stirred. But for all that, McTeague got up and lit his miner's candlestick and went carefully about the room, throwing the light into the dark corners, peering under all the beds, including his own. Then he went to the door and stepped outside. The night was warm and still, the moon very low, and canted on her side like a galleon foundering. The camp was very quiet. Nobody was in sight. "'I wonder what it was,' muttered the dentist. "'There was something. Why did I wake up? Huh?' He made a circuit about the bunkhouse, unusually alert. 
his small eyes twinkling rapidly, seeing everything. All was quiet. An old dog who invariably slept on the steps of the bunkhouse had not even wakened. McTeague went back to bed, but did not sleep. There was something, he muttered, looking in a puzzled way at his canary in the cage that hung from the wall at his bedside. Something. What was it? There is something now. There it is again. The same thing. He sat up in bed with eyes and ears strained. What is it? I don't know what it is. I don't hear anything, and I don't see anything. I feel something. Right now. Feel it now. I wonder. I don't know. I don't know. Once more he got up, and this time dressed himself. He made a complete tour of the camp, looking and listening. For what, he did not know. He even went to the outskirts of the camp, and for nearly half an hour watched the road that led into the camp from the direction of Iowa Hill. He saw nothing. Not even a rabbit stirred. He went to bed. But from this time on there was a change. The dentist grew restless, uneasy. Suspicion of something, he could not say what, annoyed him incessantly. He went wide around sharp corners. At every moment he looked sharply over his shoulder. He even went to bed with his clothes and cap on, and at every hour during the night would get up and prowl about the bunkhouse. One ear turned down the wind, his eyes gimleting the darkness. From time to time he would murmur, There's something. What is it? I wonder what it is. What strange sixth sense stirred in McTeague at this time? What animal cunning, what brute instinct clamored for recognition and obedience? What lower faculty was it that roused his suspicion, that drove him out into the night a score of times between dark and dawn, his head in the air, his eyes and ears keenly alert? One night as he stood on the steps of the bunkhouse, peering into the shadows of the camp, he uttered an exclamation as of a man suddenly enlightened. He turned back into the house, drew from under his bed the blanket roll in which he kept his money hid, and took the canary down from the wall. He strode to the door and disappeared into the night. When the sheriff of Placer County and the two deputies from San Francisco reached the Big Dipper mine, McTeague had been gone two days. End of chapter 20